Cognition in Memory after TBI. Welcome to the 2019 Brain Injury Conference. Brain Injury Rehabilitation, the Health and Wellness Connection. Sponsored by Kessler Institute for Rehabilitation and Kessler Foundation. Each year, an estimated 2.8 Americans sustain a traumatic brain injury and face a wide range of physical, functional, emotional, and social challenges. This course will focus on the importance of an individual's overall health, wellness, and rehabilitation and recovery. Topics will include personal identity, cognition and memory, maintaining relationships, and the capacity to return to fitness and other physical activities. In this lecture podcast, Dr. Nancy Chevrolati, Director of Neuropsychology, Neuroscience, and Traumatic Brain Injury Research at Kessler Foundation, presents Cognition and Memory After TBI. This presentation was recorded, produced, and edited by Joan Bang-Smith, Creative Producer for Kessler Foundation, on Wednesday, May 15, 2019, at the Kessler Institute for Rehabilitation, Chester Campus, Chester, New Jersey. Interested in more conference lecture podcasts? Click on the playlist link listed in the description of this podcast. Let's listen in. So there are many concomitants of traumatic brain injury. We're all familiar with the population. It's a very complicated population. You have physical deficits. You have changes in emotional functioning post-injury. You have behavioral changes post-injury. And then finally, you have cognitive deficits. So with all of that going on, with all of these various aspects of recovery to focus on, why are we concerned with cognitive deficits? Well, cognitive deficits have been shown to lead to depression and anxiety, decreased participation in everyday life, increased unemployment, as well as decreased quality of life. There is also data showing that improving cognition could lead to decreased emotional symptomatology, increased participation, return to work, as well as an improved quality of life. And that's really what we're aiming at, is to improve a patient's overall quality of life. So just to show you some data to demonstrate this point, along the, in the gray bar, you see a bunch of letters. That's those, each of those letters, each of those symbols stands for different measures of cognition. So you have SDMT, LCPC, they're all measures of cognitive functioning. Along the left side, you see more measures. And what I want you to focus on is the bottom row. This is the later one. Along the bottom row, you see the SF12. And I'd like you to focus on the SF12 for a second. In that row along the bottom, you see a whole bunch of significant correlations. That's what the double stars mean, that they're significant correlations, all the way along the bottom. And what that means is that the SF12 correlates significantly with every aspect of cognition that we measured. The SF12 is a measure of overall quality of life. So this data is showing us that there's a consistent relationship between overall quality of life and measures of cognitive functioning in this traumatic brain injury sample. To take it one step further, we've also treated cognition in a number of different studies in persons who have TBI. And what we've seen is that when you treat a cognitive deficit with many of our cognitive rehabilitation protocols, following treatment is in addition to an improvement in objective behavior, which I'll be showing you in a a little bit, we also see an improvement in everyday functioning. 
So cognitive rehabilitation is not only leading to changes on our measures of cognitive functioning, but it's also leading to changes in everyday life and patients are starting to report those changes or we're starting to document those changes. So when we think about cognition, cognition is very complicated. There are many, many aspects of cognition. In addition, in a traumatic brain injury sample, there are many different aspects of cognition that are impaired. So you have executive functioning deficits or those would be problems planning, sequencing, organizing. You also have processing speed deficits, which would be difficulty processing large amounts of information quickly. We have working memory deficits, which, are difficult, which is difficulty manipulating information in your mind without using paper. You have attention deficits, which is the most basic aspect of cognitive functioning. Individuals with traumatic brain injury often have difficulty paying attention, looking at various aspects of the attention process. And then finally, you have memory dysfunction. And memory dysfunction is what we've focused on recently in much of the work we've done at Kessler Foundation. And that's because memory dysfunction really is a cardinal feature post-TBI. So when patients come in, they often report memory dysfunction. They complain about poor memory. And that poor memory is visible to other people. They see them forget things. And it's very disruptive to their everyday life. So we're really trying to impact the memory process and help us as a field be able to effectively treat learning and memory following traumatic brain injury. So let's talk a little bit about the memory process. And I always start here because we think of memory as a singular construct. Either you remember well or you don't. But memory is actually a very complicated cognitive process that has multiple stages. And these are the three main stages of memory. They can be broken down further. But this is very useful in conceptualizing the memory deficit that we see following a traumatic brain injury. So the first stage is encoding. Encoding refers to the process by which we acquire new information. So thinking about an everyday life situation, you meet someone new, they introduce themselves, hi, my name is Joe. You're encoding that information. You're learning that for the first time, trying to remember it later. Someone tells you their phone number and you don't have your phone to, write it, to, to enter it into your phone or you don't have a piece of paper to write it down. That is encoding. That's learning new information for the first time because you have to remember that information later. <coughs> if you're thinking about building a house, think about pouring the cement. That would be the encoding process. And I use that analogy because when we move on to consolidation, the cement drying process is essentially our consolidation. So consolidation is allowing those memories to harden, to making them become permanent. A lot of that, the data indicates that a lot of consolidation happens when we sleep, which is one of the reasons that sleep is so essential to everyday functioning. And then the last stage, and this is what we think about when we think about memory, the last stage is retrieval. That's when you have to use the memories. So you meet Joe on the street the next day and you, you're trying to think of his name. Oh my goodness, your name is that's when we notice that memory fails. So very often, we blame the memory failure on retrieval. But it's not necessarily due to retrieval. It could be due to any process along the way. So we conducted a study looking at memory dysfunction following traumatic brain injury, looking specifically at the stages of memory, trying to figure out, is this an encoding deficit or is it a retrieval deficit? And what this graph depicts, you have persons with traumatic brain injury in green, and you have healthy individuals in blue. 
what we did was we read them a list of words and we read that list over and over again until they repeated it correctly twice. And what we were doing was ensuring that they learned the information. So we read that list up to 15 times. When they repeated it twice, then we, that was designated as the point at which they reached the learning criterion. They learned that information. What we found when we went back and looked at the data is that persons with TBI took significantly longer, needed significantly more repetitions of that list to learn the same amount of information as the healthy individuals. However, once they learned that information, they were able to recall and recognize it later. So what this is telling us is that learning is where we need to impact, we really need to impact memory, the memory process in persons with TBI. We need to improve the quality with which they learn information. So the next step was to try to treat that learning deficit. In treating the learning deficit, we certainly wanted to see them improve in their learning ability. We wanted to see that happen more quickly. But the end goal was to see an improvement in memory functioning. And when I say memory functioning here, I'm talking about that recall and recognition later. Were they able to recall it and recognize it later? We also want an improvement in quality of life and we want an improvement in, in daily functioning because that's what the patients care about. It's their daily functioning that matters. So in working on this problem, we've developed, adapted, or tested different treatment protocols. And these three treatment protocols that I'm discussing today are all part of our TBI model system, which many of you may be familiar with. The TBI model system is a federal grant fun funded by NIDLR, which is a partnership between Kessler Foundation and Kessler Institute for Rehabilitation, where we conduct research, we had to have to demonstrate exceptional clinical care, and then we follow patients for years, as long as they'll let us follow them. So we enroll them when they first have their injury, when they're inpatients at one of the Kessler facilities, and then we follow up with them one year post-injury, two years post-injury, five years post-injury, and every five years thereafter, until they say, hey, no, you're not allowed to call me anymore, which does happen, but we try to not let it happen. So these three treatment protocols have been or are being tested as part of our TBI model system grant. The first one is the one that has made the most progress, and as you can see by the dates, it goes back to our 2007 to 2012 model system. So we've already analyzed and published much of this data. So that's the one that has gone the furthest, so I'll spend the most time on that first one, which is the modified story memory technique. But then I also want to discuss speed of processing training. That clinical trial is currently wrapping up. It was part of our model system that ended in 2017, but it does take a long time to collect the data, so we're still wrapping up that data collection process now. And then in our newest model system, which started in 2017, we're looking at a different treatment protocol for memory functioning called strategy-based treatment to enhance memory. So I'll talk about that probably the least, but give you an idea of what we're currently working on. So let's start with the story memory technique. This is a treatment protocol for learning and memory that consists of 10 sessions. The sessions occur two times per week for five weeks and they're 45 to 60 minutes in duration. There are two skills taught within those sessions. In the first four sessions, we teach imagery. So we teach patients how to take seemingly unrelated information, how to take verbal information, <coughs> words, stories, and how to visualize those stories. 
So an example might be, an actual example from the treatment is your mother churning butter. You have to, you have to remember the words butter, mother, I'm trying to remember the words now, butter, mother, coffee, apple. And it's, this is all embedded in a story. That's how we present it to the patient. And what we're teaching the patients to do is take those unrelated words and incorporate them into one image. So the image that they might visualize is an image of their mother churning butter while drinking coffee with an apple on the table next to her. So it's all in one visual image. And there are a couple other wor target words that are actually embedded in that image as well. So you're taking all these different pieces of material, you're chunking them together, and you're having them create one visual image. That's what's taught in sessions one through four. In sessions five through eight, we take it one step further, and all we give them is the words. So in sessions one through four, we're giving them the stories, we're teaching them to visualize. In sessions five through eight, we're giving them a list of words, and we're teaching them to take those words and put them in a meaningful context. And the meaningful context we use is a story. So we ask them to write a story using the target words that we give them. So they're learning how to put unrelated information in a meaningful context, and then what we ask them to do is apply the imagery that they learned in sessions one through four to visualize those stories. Finally, in sessions nine through 10, we specifically talk about how to use these skills in your daily life. So we're doing the same thing that we did in sessions five through eight, except we're doing it with everyday life information. So in one session, we use directions. In another session, we use a to-do list which includes errands that someone might want have to run in their, in their daily life. In another session, we use a shopping list. In another session, we use a list of birthday gifts and the people that they're supposed to go to. So there are four se different sessions that, that exist to choose from. If none of those sessions apply to a particular patient and they say something else is more relevant to them, then we create a session around that topic that might be more relevant to them. And this is really based on feedback from our initial pilot studies, where when we asked participants about the treatment protocol, what they found useful and what they didn't find useful, they said that these strategies are great, they enjoyed the, the treatment, they were able to use them, but they had absolutely no idea how to apply them in their daily lives. So that's why we added those two sessions onto the end, and now we have a full 10-session treatment protocol. So this was tested in traumatic brain injury during the last TBI model system cycle, which ended in 2017. We enrolled 95 individuals with traumatic brain injury, moderate to severe. We did a pre and post, so before treatment and after treatment, neuropsychological assessment, and that enabled us to look at an objective change in learning and memory ability. We, did, we administered questionnaires regarding everyday life, asking patients what they thought about their everyday life, how they were doing in their everyday life before treatment, and then how they were doing after. We also had significant others fill out forms that were designed for significant others. And then in a subsample, we did neuroimaging. So we looked at changes at the level of the brain. We suspected that the treatment was working, so what we wanted to know was why is the treatment working? What's happening in the brain that's making their learning and memory abilities better? So in the, along the, in the top bullet, you see RCT. So just to explain what that means, because that's a very important component of the design, RCT stand, stands for randomized clinical trial. 
What that means, for those of you who might not be familiar with the research lingo, is that when patients come into the study, when they're enrolled in the study, they're randomized to either a treatment group or a placebo control group. So we have no idea who's going in what group. It's all done via computer. And then the person administering the treatment, the, the person administering the assessments also does not know what group they're in, so that the assessment is completely unbiased. And then the patient also does not know what group they're in because the group that's in, the patient that's in the control group is undergoing what they think might be a treatment. So when the patient sign a consent form, they sign a consent form with the knowledge that there's only a 50% chance that they're getting the treatment that we're testing. The reason for this is this is the design that provides class one evidence. Class one evidence is the most rigorous evidence that you can provide in support or in refute of the efficacy of a give, any given treatment. So this is what's done with all the drug studies and you may be familiar with placebos done. It's a lot easier in a drug study because then you just give them a sugar pill. Um, but in this case, what we need to do is actually de design a control condition that matches the treatment condition. So our main outcome variable was the CVLT. And what you see here is no change on the CVLT. And the reason I present this is because this becomes important later, specifically as it relates to a traumatic brain injury sample. We conducted this study first in individuals with multiple sclerosis, and we saw a significant change on the CVLT. For those of you who might not be familiar, the CVLT is a list learning test. So when they're learning that list of words, we're simply reading them a list of 16 words, and they have to remember that list of words. When they're learning that list of words, they have to somehow invoke some strategy to help them learn that list. At baseline, presumably they don't have any strategies that may, they may necessarily be imparting on the list to help them learn it. The goal is at follow-up, after they finish treatment, the treatment group will have these strategies that they can use to help them learn the list. And that is what we saw in the MS sample. So when you think of the CVLT, you're giving them a completely unstructured list of words. So you're asking them to apply both context and imagery. Everything they learned has to be applied in order to improve their learning of that list. They were not able to do that. However, we also administered a paragraph. We, we read a paragraph and asked them to repeat that paragraph back to us. Now when you think about the learning demands there, in order to apply the strategies they learned, the only strategy that really needs to be applied is the imagery. They learned imagery in session one and used it for 10 sessions, so they had a lot of practice. They didn't learn the context until session five, so they had less exposure to that, and it's a lot more complicated. They were able to improve. The treatment group showed a significant improvement, and you see that on the right, in terms of their ability to learn and remember a paragraph. So that's the, the blue bar is the treatment group post-treatment. So they showed a nice improvement there. So they're showing an improvement in their ability to apply imagery. Now when we looked at the imaging data, we saw some significant changes there also. For those of you who don't like looking at brains, we have line graphs there that are sometimes easier if you're not familiar with the neuroanatomy. And what we saw was a significant change in the default mode network. That included the left posterior cingulate cortex as well as the right rostral anterior cingulate cortex. So we saw an increase in activity in both of those areas. The default mode network is suppressed during performance of a cognitively demanding task. So when you're doing something that's cognitively demanding, the default mode network is quieter. 
when you're doing something that's easier for you, the default mode network is more active. So that increase in activity means that that learning task is less cognitively demanding post-treatment in the treatment group. So we're able to see this from a neuroanatomical perspective. The other network that changed post-treatment was the executive control network. And that included the right dorsolateral prefrontal cortex as well as the supplementary motor area. So the executive control network is, le is um, more active when you're doing a demanding task. So it's just the opposite. And these two networks are often anti-correlated. So when you're doing a demanding task, the executive control network is more active because of the demands placed on that network to process the information. When you're doing a less demanding task or a task that's easier for you, the executive control network is suppressed during that time. So what we saw post-treatment is a decrease in activity of the executive control network. So the task then, this is showing us that the task became easier for the patient post-treatment. So we have behavioral data that shows that the imagery is applied, but not the context. We have imaging data that's showing more efficient encoding. The behavioral data was evident on paragraph learning, but not on the list learning, so not on the CVLT. So these behavioral changes on the CVLT didn't reach significance in the TBI sample, but they did in the MS sample. And the question we had there is why? What's the difference? Because we know that post-treatment, patients can show an improvement in, on the CVLT, on this list learning task, but those with traumatic brain injury did not show that improvement. So our hypothesis is that the imagery is being acquired, but the context in the organization is not. This could be a dose-response relationship. They did get many, many more sessions that involved imagery, so they were practicing it more and more over a period of time. But it could also be related, and it likely is related, to the other cognitive deficits that the person is experiencing. So the application of the imagery included the posterior regions, and it really relied on visual spatial skills, and it was effective. The application of the context or the organization involves frontal regions and executive skills and working memory. That was not effective. So maybe there are other cognitive deficits at play that are precluding this context and organization to be used effectively in this sample. So that is the next question we had. So when you think about cognition, this of course made us go back to cognition. What is, what is feeding into learning and memory? And when you think about learning and memory, Learning and memory really is a higher level cognitive process. Everything you do feeds into learning and memory. So if there's a deficit in any other area, it could impact your learning and memory functioning. So looking at this slide, you see attention feeding into learning and memory. And a perfect example of that is a child with ADHD. They're not paying attention and they're not getting good grades in school. But their memory system is fine. It's not that they can't remember the information, they're just not paying attention to it. So if you fix their attention, their grades improve very often because their learning and memory system is actually intact. The same can be said for working memory or visual spatial processing or processing speed or executive control. All of these different domains of cognition feed into learning and memory. So if you have a deficit in one of those areas and the information that you're using includes 
requires that you process information through that system, then you may have a deficit in learning and memory. So that's what we wanted to look at in this traumatic brain injury sample. And what we started with was working, working memory. That's because working memory is such a big problem in individuals who have a traumatic brain injury. So when we talk about working memory, think about the situation. In, in a classical neuropsychological assessment arena, what we do is we read a list of numbers and we ask the patient to repeat them back to us. We start with two numbers, then it goes to three numbers and four numbers and five numbers, and it gets more and more difficult as the patient demonstrates an ability to do that. And we very often see deficits in traumatic brain injury on that task. In everyday life, you might think about going to a store, purchasing a blouse. You need to know how much it costs. It's 25% off. So in your mind, you have to do that math. So that's the working memory that we use on a daily basis. So working memory refers to the control, regulation, and maintenance of a limited amount of information. Some of you may have heard working memory is plus or mi seven plus or minus two. That's about the span of what you can hold in your working memory. So a phone number, that's about the span of working memory. To those of you who might remember when the phones actually plugged into the walls and you had a phone book, so sometimes you had to look up a number in the phone book and you had to rehearse it in your head and then you had to go over and dial a number. That's no longer the case. Everything's on speed dial and encoded, but you know, that's okay. So it's making our lives a lot easier, but it's not taxing our working memory system anymore. If you couldn't do that, that was very often because of working memory. Now working memory is important because it's involved in the formation and retrieval of long-term memories. Working memory is very often referred to as the encoding stage of long-term memory. So it's very important in that initial stage. And that's the stage where we identify the deficit in persons with traumatic brain injury. There are cognitive and individual differences, not only in persons with traumatic brain injury, but also in healthy individuals. So someone could have a high working memory capacity where they use more controlled processing strategies and those individuals are very often better able to integrate new information into long-term memory. And that's really what we wanted to look at in this study. We wanted to look at the relationship between working memory capacity and long-term memory impairment. We know in the literature that there is a relationship when you just look at neuropsychological testing at one time, you look at the relationship between a working memory test and a learning and memory test. We know there's a relationship in individuals with traumatic brain injury individuals with multiple sclerosis, normal healthy aging individuals, as well as individuals with mild cognitive impairment. So there is a relationship between better working memory capacity and better learning and memory capacity. So we wanted to, to look at, is working memory capacity a cognitive marker that can identify who will and will not improve from memory rehabilitation? And this was a post hoc analysis of the data I previously presented from that clinical trial. So the question here is, we know this worked in individuals with multiple sclerosis. We saw that they were able to apply context and they were able to apply imagery when we sat them down for that final testing. That didn't happen in TBI. In TBI, they were only able to apply the imagery. So the question is, why is that? What other system do we need to impact? So we looked at working memory and we developed a composite score, and that composite score was made of two different tests of working memory capacity. We combined them, created a composite, and then what we did is we split the sample in regard to high working memory capacity 
and low working memory capacity. So we had these two different groups of individuals. Interestingly enough, the sample naturally just split well, right in half. And then we did an analysis, and this was a little more complicated than the analysis we did in the last, the last part of the study. We did a two group by two, a two by two between subjects analysis. So what we were looking at is group treatment or control, which is what we looked at earlier, and we looked at working memory high versus low. And then we looked at how their changes on the CVLT post-treatment. And this is what we found. On the right, you see the high working memory capacity. I'm sorry, it was my right. On your left, you see the high working memory capacity group. And that group showed a very nice change post-treatment on the CVLT. So they were able to apply the context and the imagery and benefit fully from the treatment. On the right, you see the low working memory capacity group. That group did not show a change on the CVLT. So these were the folks that were really only able to apply the imagery. So working memory really got in the way of their ability to apply the treatment and be able to benefit fully from that treatment. So working memory deficits clearly play a role in benefit from memory rehabilitation. And that's what we concluded from that study. However, there are other potential sources of the deficit, and I showed you that figure earlier. There's processing speed, executive functioning, verbal ability, and perceptual ability. So in our next study, what we wanted to do is look at processing speed. We didn't have the data readily available to us in that existing study. So what we decided to do was engage in our next study, which was the speed of processing training that I mentioned earlier following traumatic brain injury. And this was in our 2012 to 2017 model system. And once again, we're still collecting the end of that data. So we will be probably working on this study for about another year before we analyze the data and publish it. But I can show you some of the pilots from some of the pilot data as well as the methodology of the study. So once again, this is a RCT, which is the randomized clinical trial. It includes 80 participants, all with moderate to severe TBI. They are recruited from the TBI model system or independently in the community. However they get to us, as long as they qualify for the study, they're free to enroll. They do have to be at least one year post-injury, and that's true of all of our cognitive rehabilitation studies. The reason for that is we want to see cognition we want to see overall general recovery even out a little bit and that the greatest recovery occurs during that first year. So we're trying to limit the confounding factors in determining whether or not we have a treatment effect. And then they have to have documented processing speed deficits. So they need, not everyone with a traumatic brain injury has a processing speed deficit. So we want to make sure our sample demonstrated that. Once again, it was randomized. So we had 50% being, we have 50% being randomized to the treatment group and 50% being randomized to the control group. This is again a 10 session computerized processing speed treatment. So the 10 sessions in both the learning and memory treatment as well as the processing speed treatment, those, the number of sessions is not scientifically determined. That's, that was a practical decision. How long do we really think, and in based on our experience, will patients continue to come back for treatment? And it's after about five weeks that they kind of start waning. They really don't want to keep coming back, and that's when we start seeing non-compliance. So that's why we really focused in on the 10-session treatment. Now, based on the story memory technique data that I just presented, those folks probably need a little more 
to, to really show the full treatment effect. Whereas with MS, it was effective in 10 sessions. With TBI, you probably need a little bit more. But in this study, we also engaged in a 10-session computerized treatment. This was a laptop administration, highly manualized. It includes three levels. The first level is single discrimination. So an object appears in the middle of the screen, and the individual needs to respond as quickly as possible whether they see a truck or a car. The, the time of appearance for the object, that's time. So as the patient gets faster, the object appears for less and less time, and that's how we're pushing the processing speed. Once they reach 75% accuracy in that level, they move on to the next level, which is a discrimination task with a peripheral target. So they have their target in the middle, but then they also have a target around in their periphery, and they have to pay attention to that target in the periphery and make their determination. When they reach 75 to 80% accuracy, they go on to the next stage, which is a discrimination task with a peripheral target, just like before, but now it's embedded among distractors. Once again, this happens very, very quickly, so it's actually a very challenging task. When I sat down to do it, by the time I was getting toward it, it was driving me crazy. It really is a very difficult task, even when you have perfectly intact processing speed. So we did assessments, or we're doing assessments, before treatment, within one week post-treatment, and then six months post-treatment. And those assessments consist first of an objective cognitive evaluation, and we always include that because that's the gold standard for evaluating cognitive rehabilitation efficacy. So that's your neuropsychological assessment. They're testing in a quiet environment, doing processing speed test. We also included in this study an objective evaluation of cognition in daily life, and the OTs out there are probably familiar with the TIADL, the Timed Independent Activities of Daily Living. We borrowed that from the OT literature, and that's a very effective test for showing how speed influences everyday life performance. We then had patients complete a subjective evaluation of cognition in daily life. So those are the questionnaires. How are you doing in your daily life? Is memory, is learning or memory or processing speed, how are they interfering with your daily life performance? And we do that before treatment and again after treatment to try to capture changes. Then we do an emotional evaluation, which includes a depression and an anxiety scale, actually two depression scales and two anxiety scales. Then we're also looking at some other factors, including awareness, self-efficacy and work readiness. So we want to look at whether or not there are changes in awareness post-treatment, whether or not a person's self-efficacy might increase post-treatment. And then in terms of work, with a 10-session treatment protocol, you can't really expect that in five weeks a person's going to be going back to work. They're all of a sudden going to get a job. So what we decided to look at is work readiness. So how ready are you to go back to work when you start treatment? And then maybe do you have a little more confidence or are you a little bit more ready once you finish treatment? So that, that's the work readiness scale. I have some pilot data that I could present. Looking at the neuropsychological assessment, this is letter comparison, which is a processing speed task. We see that the treatment group shows a significant improvement from pre to post treatment on the letter comparison task whereas the control group shows a small decline. So we're seeing a significant improvement in terms of their neuropsychological assessment. We're also seeing a significant improvement on the TIADL, which is our objective tests of speed in everyday life. So we're seeing, and in this case, a lower score is better. So we're seeing a faster, faster performance in the treatment group from pre to post treatment. We're also seeing faster performance in the control group, but 
the change from pre to post treatment is much less. And then we do have some imaging data from pre to post treatment. On the top of the screen, you see what patients look like before treatment. So on the left side of the screen, you see the control group. On the right side of the screen, you see the experimental group. And those two brains look pretty similar, those two brains in the top row. When you look at the bottom row, you see the control, the, the control group post-treatment on the left. And then on the right, you see the experimental group post-treatment. And if you notice, those two brains look very different. So the experimental group is showing significantly greater activation across many areas of the brain post-treatment, and the control group shows virtually no change. So this is telling us that there are behavioral changes post-treatment, and there are also imaging changes post-treatment. So we're looking forward to being able to get that data and really look at processing speed changes. The other thing we'll be able to look at in the big study, because we have so many more participants, is learning and memory. So learning and memory is an outcome in this study. And the, the reason for that is we want to look at that connection between processing speed and learning and memory. So if someone has a processing speed deficit and we improve it, what happens to their learning and memory functioning? Are we essentially treating that learning and memory deficit by treating the processing speed deficit? So the last study I want to talk a little bit about is strategy-based treatment to enhance memory. And this is in our current TBI model system. This study is ongoing now. I think we're just enrolling participant number 23. So we're very early in this study. This is an eight-session treatment protocol that teaches three new learning techniques. So once again, we're focusing specifically on learning here. It teaches self-generation, self-testing, and space learning. And I'll tell you a little bit about each one of those in a few minutes. This is teaching the person with the injury, as well as significant others, how to apply these techniques in daily life. Now, if someone can't come in with a significant other, that doesn't preclude them from participation, but we encourage them to come in with a significant other, and you'll see why in a minute. It's an eight-session treatment protocol. The outcome measurements include neuropsychological tests, of, so the gold standard for evaluating a cognitive rehabilitation protocol. It includes questionnaires of everyday functioning, and it includes patient report as well as significant other report. And the focus, again, is on improving everyday life. So in this case, our primary outcome is actually those questionnaires of everyday functioning because we want to see their everyday life change in this, in this case. So why STEM? Why did we choose this treatment protocol? We know that treating cognitive deficits is emphasized in the literature post-TBI, and we also know that cognitive rehabilitation is very commonly used in inpatient rehabilitation as well as outpatient settings across the world. The evidence in support of cognitive rehabilitation has been building. There's a nice evidence base out there now that spans attention, working memory, and executive functioning. It also looks at different outcomes. So we're seeing a lot of evidence in objective cognitive performance, or the neuropsychological assessment. Less people are looking at everyday life, but we're starting to document changes in everyday life as more and more research studies look at it. And then we're also starting to document changes in neuroimaging and really understanding what's happening at the level of the brain. But despite this, there are still major holes. The class one evidence is just really not out there yet. There are some studies, but not enough. And that includes that rigorous methodology and the randomized clinical trials. So the ultimate goal in conducting all of this research is to demonstrate efficacy so that you can guide clinicians in what works and what doesn't work 
as well as impact reimbursement rates because insurance companies won't pay for this stuff if they don't have the evidence that it works. I see heads nodding, so everybody's very familiar with that problem. So strategy training specifically shows substantial promise. There's consistent empirical support. This empirical support is with healthy college students. There is a ton of support out there for these, each of these strategies in healthy college students. And that those studies also show that the treatment gains are maintained six months and a year later. So people are able to apply these strategies. So it includes three strategies with the greatest empirical support. Each is well grounded in the literature. And what the literature has also shown is that the combination of strategies is better than just an individual strategy. So the three strategies, again, are self-generation, space learning, and self-testing. And as an aside, the story memory technique, which is what I spoke about earlier, also teaches two strategies, but those are two different strategies. So it teaches imagery and it teaches context and organization. So those are different strategies from these three strategies. So the ultimate goal would be to provide patients with a toolbox of techniques that will help them in their daily life. So to tell you a little bit about what each one of these are, and I'm moving really quickly because I'm running out of time, self-generation stipulates that information that is self-generated will be remembered better than information that's provided. So if I say it's unlucky to walk under a ladder, right? If I tell you to remember the word ladder, you won't remember it as well as if I simply gave you that statement and asked you to generate that word. And generating that word was pretty simple. You all came to the same conclusion. So you knew that it was, it was the, the target word was ladder, but you generated it on your own, and that makes a big difference. So in everyday life, and this is why we like significant others involved in the treatment, instead of telling someone, you know, as they're running out the door, please pick up toothpaste on your way home, I just ran out, you would tell the person, when you go to the store, please pick up the stuff we use to clean our teeth. And they would say, you mean toothpaste? And that sounds ridiculous. I know it sounds ridiculous, but it works. So they'll remember that word better. They'll remember when they're standing there in the store and they can't remember what to pick up because they were on their way out the door and they couldn't write it down. They're going to remember toothpaste better if it was given to them that way than if it was simply provided to them. That's why it's important to include a significant other because what you need to do is change the learning environment, the way the information is presented. And we don't provide our own information to be learned. Someone else is often doing that, whether it be in conversation or however it might be done. So that's why it's important. So I just show you this, I just want to show you this slide real quick to demonstrate. If you look at the two lines in the middle of the screen, you see a dotted gray line and you see a solid black line. The solid black line depicts individuals with TBI who generated information. The dotted gray line depicts healthy individuals in a normal learning condition. And what I want you to notice is how close those lines are to each other. So what this data showed us is that when someone with a traumatic brain injury is generating information, they're remembering that information much, much better than when it was provided. And it's almost to the place where healthy individuals are performing in their normal everyday life under normal learning condition. So we're seeing a very nice improvement when you use self-generation. Self-generation is not always possible though. Sometimes you have information and you have to learn that information and you can't generate it. So I give you the example of directions. Don't generate your own directions because you're not getting where you're supposed to go. So space learning works in a situation like that. So space learning is when trials are distributed over time. This is the reason we tell our kids, our students, don't cram for an exam, 
space out your learning. Spaced learning works. We have hundreds of years of research showing that it works in healthy individuals, and we've also compiled data in persons with traumatic brain injury that show that it works. So in this case, if someone has to go somewhere on a Saturday morning, it's a new place, they don't know how to get there, and they know that they're not good looking at a navigator and following directions while they're driving because they may not have the best executive functioning skills in the world, then put it into MapQuest on Thursday night. Get your directions. Read over the directions on Thursday night. Read them over again Friday morning, and then again Friday afternoon, and then again Friday night. And then on Saturday, you've had four repetitions of this information spaced out. You'll remember it better than if you read that information four times on Saturday morning before you get in the car. So again, you're changing your learning environment. This the individual can do themselves, but if you have a significant other that knows what you're doing and can support that at home, it really is helpful. The final, treat, the final technique we teach in the treatment is self-testing or retrieval practice. So this is simply if you test yourself on information and you have to call it up to mind, you'll remember it better than if you simply repeat that information over and over again. This has been in our educational literature forever. It's in all of our schools. It's the reason teachers give quizzes all the time, even though they may not know that that's actually what they're doing. They're asking people to call that information to mind before they actually have to go in for that big test. And in reality, what the data shows is that when you do give quizzing, your students do better than if you simply have one test at the end of a, a chapter. So everyday life examples would be quizzing the index card method. If any of you use the index card method or maybe taught it to your kids if you have kids, you're looking at a piece of information and you're quizzing yourself on it before you turn over that card and check your answer. The PQRST method is one that I remember from when I was in elementary school where they had you preview, review, question, quiz yourself, and then do something else at the end. I don't even remember it all. It was very complicated. It didn't have to be as complicated as it was, but they had the quizzing in there, and that was an essential component of the PQRST method. So STEM teaches the application of these three techniques in eight sessions. In session one, you talk about memory and what it is and what it's not. In session two to three, you talk about self-generation. Sessions four and five focus on space learning. Session six to seven focus on self-testing. And then in session eight, you're practicing applying the technique to everyday life and combining different strategies when you need to. The pilot data shows significant effects of STEM on multiple aspects of functioning. So on the left side of the screen, you see perceived deficits. So it's self-report, how they're doing in everyday life. In the middle, you see the FAMS, which is a measure of quality of life in people with MS. And then on the right, you see the CVLT, so we're see which is our memory, our, cognitive, our neuropsychological test and memory functioning. So we're seeing changes at all levels. That's our pilot data. The randomized clinical trial is ongoing in 80 participants. Um, again, randomized to a treatment group and control group to really show efficacy. We're looking at objective cognitive functioning as well as everyday life functioning, and that includes questionnaires as well as an objective test of everyday life. So in summary, what we're showing with our COG rehab studies is behavioral changes, we're showing changes in everyday life, and we're even showing changes on functional neuro neuroimaging that's helping us to understand why a treatment works. So that was really packed in there, so I apologize if I went too quickly, but I wanted to get it all in there. So I want to obviously thank our funding sources as well as my collaborators. 
For more information about Kessler Foundation and our researchers, go to KesslerFoundation.org. That's K-E-S-S-L-E-R-F-O-U-N-D-A-T-I-O-N.org. Like us on Facebook, follow us on Instagram, listen to us on SoundCloud, and tweet with us on Twitter.